My name's Vicky Neal, and I'm a mathematician at the University of Oxford. Since March 2021, I've also been having treatment, on and off, for a rare form of cancer. That's been very educational. I've been learning lots about cancer and the various treatments available. While I wish it was less personally relevant to me, I also find it fascinating. I take comfort and have great pride in knowing that I have colleagues in the mathematical community whose research helps to tackle cancer, from prevention through diagnosis to treatment. In this podcast series, Maths Plus Cancer, I'm going to sit down with some of them to find out more about their research and about the people behind the research. I'd love you to join me for our conversations to learn more about how mathematics and mathematicians are helping to combat cancer. I'm joined today by David Spiegelhalter, who is chair of the Winton Centre for Risk and Evidence Communication in Cambridge. David's career spans research in medical statistics and public understanding of risk. You might have heard him on BBC Radio or on his Risky Talk podcast, seen him on TV, whether a documentary or the BBC's Winter Wipeout show, or read his book, The Art of Statistics. Among his many awards and honours, he's been knighted for his work in medical statistics, he's a fellow of the Royal Society, and he's appeared on Desert Island Discs. David, thanks so much for joining me online today. No, no, a pleasure, a pleasure. In the context of cancer, I think that we, or at least I, turn to statistics hoping for, for solid facts and clear evidence. But of course, it's much more complicated than that. Why did you choose The Art of Statistics as the title for your book? Oh, oh, that's a good question. We, we took ages to choose the title. The whole thing was written, you know, finished off and everything, the cover designs and everything. I kept on changing my mind. And it was somebody else who suggested it because I was dithering around, you know, something to do with learning from data and everything. But um, it, the idea is the art is that it, it tries to communicate that statistics is not some algorithmic automatic process. Data does not give up its secrets <laughs> easily. Um, and there's a nice quote for, I always use in the book, start the book with it, from Nate Silver from uh, Signal and the Noise. And Nate you know, works on sports betting and election forecasting and things like that. And he says something like, um, uh, the, the numbers do not speak for themselves. We imbue them with meaning. And I think, you know, it, 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 so it's an art. As a more perhaps more of a craft that than in in um to, to to take data and to try to then say what can we learn from it? I mean, it's kind of the idea of turning information into knowledge or whatever, yeah, in statistical inference. Um, but that that sounds too narrow and too mathematical. And the whole point about the book is that this is not just a mathematical process. The sort of stuff that I've spent years both learning and teaching is only of limited relevance when it comes to actually using data in our real lives. Yeah, I guess it's all about asking the right questions, not just kind of turning turning the handle to get answers out. If you ask the wrong questions, then you're going to end up with junk at the end of it. Exactly. And the whole book is based around the data cycle, uh, which starts with a question. You know, it's all to do with problem solving, with question answering, it starts with a question. And then, you know, then you go on to say, well, actually, you know, can we even answer it with the data we've got? Um, but if you think you might, or you can plan then to get some data, and collect it, and sort it out, and um, you know clean it up, wrangle it, and then do some analysis, and then go on to the communication and the visualizations and the interpretation and uh, and so on. And the analysis is really only a small part of that whole thing, and yet it's what we all spend our time learning and teaching. That's really interesting. 
And I guess in the context of cancer, um, ideas and tools from statistics and the, the statistical numbers themselves are um, used in lots of different ways in trying to, to understand and tackle cancer. Um, what aspects are you most excited about at the moment? See, well, I mean, traditionally, I, I've always worked as a medical statistician for decades. And I suppose, you know, medical statisticians are brought up on clinical trial data. And that's the most obvious way in which statistics have in the past been used, I think, for cancer to determine treatments. And is staggeringly valuable to uh, the idea of a randomized trial. So you have a proper control group and it's randomly allocated so that any differences really, um, you know, you should be apart from the play of chance, which you get over by having lots of people, um, should be due to the treatment. You can actually quote a causal effect. And they've been enormously impressive in cancer, led to huge advances. And due to extraordinary, I don't know, courage of the people who have been, been involved in it. Um, I mean, randomised trials of mastectomy and breast cancer and things like that, where women have volunteered to not know what treatment they were going to be getting up until the last minute. Um, it's terribly impressive that people have volunteered for this and given huge knowledge to people. Uh, in the, and that's, you know, I think this idea that in the same thing happened with COVID is that enormous number of volunteers for, for clinical trials. So because everyone feels that if I'm going to have to go through this, um, I might as well, this, you know, what I experienced should be of value to other people. So, um, so clinical trials have been enormously valuable in, 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 in cancer treatments. But my main interest now is in prognostic models. And essentially what this means is that for people who have got cancer, trying to help them make a judgment about what treatment to have and actually just to have an idea of what their prospects might be. And I know that the Winton Centre, your team, have been involved in the um, the PREDICT tools for breast and prostate cancers, which yeah. I think yeah. are designed to help clinicians have those conversations with patients about possible treatment scenarios and, and what the consequences might be for patients and so on. Those don't apply in my case, but I had a bit of a poke around the, um, the PREDICT breast tool because I was kind of curious how it works. So what principles were important when you and your colleagues were, were putting those tools together? Well, the first thing is that we didn't do the statistical analysis. Uh, Paul Farrow really has been in charge of developing and colleagues have been in charge of developing the statistical models, but it's the kind of thing I, 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 I could do. Um, it, and uh, the principles are to try to take factors that are available uh, at the point at which a decision has to be made, essentially in, in breast cancer about adjuvant treatment and prostate cancer about um, uh, whether one's going to do uh, essentially a radical intervention or not. Um, and uh, using just that information, using the best prognostic factors you can to predict really essentially just what survival might be. So in the case of the, the breast cancer tool, the, the, the clinician or the patient can enter data about the size of the tumour and a few kind of factors about the patient and explore the possible scenarios for various different types of drug treatment. Is that a kind of quick summary? Yeah, exactly. So it would be, you know, obviously age and size of, you know, the number of nodes and involved and, and various things that one, one would normally be able to have available. Um, and then looking at uh, the, the, the survival if there was no treatment given apart from the initial surgery. And then um, on top of that would be the effect of, of chemotherapy, of, um, of uh, clostuzumab, uh, various other treatments that one might give. Um, in terms of survival and and uh, using the best data that's currently available. And one of the things that struck me as interesting is about that is that 
the tool presents this survival data in a number of different ways. So it's not just a single way. And I suspect that that's the result of a lot of discussion and thought about the advantages and disadvantages of different approaches. Yeah, I mean, the one thing it doesn't do is say how long someone is going to live. It doesn't give any number at all for how long, because I think those numbers are always grossly misleading to say, oh, how, how long have I got, doctor, or oh, a year or 18 months? Because the crucial thing is that we don't know. And actually, if you say someone a year, it's very unlikely they'll live a year. They, you know, more they live, live a lot less or, or considerably more. So, um, so it much more emphasizes the idea of um, the uncertainty, the fact that we could, um, we could say, um, you know, about what, what proportion of women like you might be alive in ten years, five years, ten years, fifteen years? And there's lots of different ways to present that data. Um, and so, we're, because there's no correct way of doing it, some people just like the numbers. Some people like little icons, uh, little images. Although we we've learned lots of things like don't use images of people, and the choice of color is important. We're trying not to trying to make it as a, a sort of emotionally, um, uh, you know, we want it to be engaging and vivid, but not emotionally powerful we want to be actually to de-emotionalize the whole thing so we don't put great big black icons or great big red ones or anything like that and we're not making a judgment about anything Although, and so we use tables and bar charts i like survival curves and some people like survival curves so we put them in there some like some like it some can understand it there's no correct way to do this and so we do it in lots of ways the other thing we're really keen on is that we never say this is your risk this is the risk of the women it's not um, everyone's individual, everyone's unique. The, the most we can say is that, well, out of 100 people who ticked your bo those boxes, essentially we're saying, this is what we'd expect to happen to them in 10 years' time. And we can base that on the data that we've got. Um, and so that's how it's always represented. Because everyone's unique, there's always factors that you, we don't measure that the doctor might very well know about. And so it only provides a ballpark figure for um, the actual conversation to be had. Um, between the, the clinicians and the patient. And that's how it's used in multidisciplinary team meetings. It's there all the time. It really is, you know, like an expert system. Where, you know, we don't call it AI, but it is AI. It's treated like that. It's treated as, a, as an expert in the corner. They bash it through, says what, see what predict says, and then they say, well, yeah, we think it might be a bit higher, a bit lower. This patient's got some extra factors involved. And that's how it should be used. And do you have a sense of how widely used these tools are now? Have they been kind of taken up um, oh, um, in lots of places? Very roughly, um, Predict for Breast Cancer is used around 30,000 times a month across the whole world. So that's about 1,000 times a day, around the, right around the world. It's translated into eight languages now, I think. Like so um, it's, it, it's seen to be extremely valuable. As, and I can understand why, because it, it sort of levels the playing field. As I said, it doesn't say what the woman's risk is, but it gives everybody a common basis from which to work from. It gives a ballpark figure that puts things in perspective and gives an idea, and particularly what the benefit is of things like chemotherapy, where, which is going to be tough. And one of the things I think is really interesting about it is that idea of um, empowering patients to be able to engage in that conversation with clinicians in a meaningful way. I know from my own experience as a patient, it's really hard because I'm not an expert in this stuff, but also I want to understand these decisions. I want to be part of these decisions. And I guess this provides a, 
a mechanism that clinicians can use as part of that conversation with patients. Absolutely. I mean, th that's the whole idea. Where we, Although it can be used just by the clinicians, our hope and uh, our experience is that very often it's used with the patient as well. It can be used just by the patient if they've got the information. So it's completely publicly available. Um, there's no there's no patient version and clinician version. We, we rule that out immediately. And everyone gets the same. And um, so it should be part of that conversation. So a triangular conversation so they can explore things. Um, we haven't got side effects in, we've got the side effects in prostate, not in, in breast yet. They're almost ready to go in. And I think that's also incredibly important. Yeah, I'm sort of reflecting on my own experience, side effects are, are really important in terms of making a decision, but it's so difficult to build into these things. Otherwise, you'd just, oh, go, you know, everyone would go for maximum intervention. But um, no, you don't necessarily want to do that. So, I mean, talk from my experience. I've had prostate cancer, um, but I was diagnosed. It was uh, 2016 or so. And I wish Prostate Predict had been available then. I really do. I could have put myself into it, got an idea, and it would have helped the conversation hugely, I think, with people. So I really, really wish I'd had it available. So has that, your own experience, informed the way that you kind of go about thinking about these things? Yeah, oh, oh, hugely, yes. It's in, um, and, and my enthusiasm for these things. I think everyone should, everyone should have these available for as many conditions as possible. We've now got it for transplantation and um, other conditions as well. So because when people see it, they largely clinicians largely say well i want one of those for my cancer <laughs> i want one i mean they're not always so you know it's much so much easier when you the terrible thing to say but with the really common cancers because you've got lots of data to build these things on and so you can build more refined models but the basic idea i think of, of it you know helping with the conversation i think I, it is definitely to do with patient empowerment not not you know patients can choose so much they want to be involved in their decision but in the end it is a shared decision I mean it's the patient has to take the consequences and so they have to feel that they should feel that actually whatever decision has been made that they have been engaged in it and you know lots of studies have shown that this kind of thing doesn't actually change may not change very much what anyone does it's not intended to try to reduce or increase treatment or do anything like that but it increases decision satisfaction you know, people people feel they have been engaged they have been consulted their feelings have been taken into account and this is hugely important because um regret and you know is an important emotion that one li would like to avoid and i think this this interplay between the statistics and the humanity is is such an interesting aspect of your work in this area yeah, I mean, that's why I work with psychologists now almost exclusively, because um, I, this idea of the fact that, you know, these are difficult, difficult topics, people in a very vulnerable state, is because this is for people just after, essentially after, just after they know about the diagnosis. So this is, a, as I know, you know, this is a really, you know, you're in, a, you're in an extraordinarily um, fragile state at that point. And so it's got to be done carefully. Um, and it's got to be done with consideration and care, and and yet it can, and uh, but it can be done, and people really appreciate it. We've done so many interviews and focus groups and individual um, conversations with patients. I, I I don't do them, but we've got trained people who are incredibly good at it. Yeah. My my sense is that there's an increasing emphasis on empowering patients to be involved in these conversations. Oh, if you look at the personalised care institutes going on, shared decision, SDM, shared decision making, it's been around for donkey's years, but it's been taken a lot more seriously. And, and what are the other thing, we've, we've just um, uh, prepared and published for the NHS uh, 10 decision aids in a range of, they're actually paper-based, 
at the moment. That's what we, patients wanted. Um, but on a range of difficult topics and which take the predict approach and play it out for topic after topic after topic. Um, difficult things in which one looks at, um, you know, what are the options, what are the treatment options, what are the potential benefits and harms. It can't be so personalised because it's, it's so it's not, and I don't even like calling predict personalised, it's stratified because it, otherwise it sounds like it's your risk, it's not your risk. So it's stratified, I, I like that term. That term. But, and the paper ones really have to be much more general, although they can obviously stratify into very broad factors. And they talk about the benefits, harms, relative treatments, and what you may want to think about, well, you know, what, and, and particularly about the side effects and things like that, and what your prospects might be. So it's less refined, but it's got all that ethos there. And these things, again and again, are shown to be popular and useful, but they take a lot of time because you've got to test them, the language, we want to put in pictures. You tend to often have things at multiple levels. You have something at a very high level, then more detail, and then always let people, give people sources. So if they want to go on the web and find out more, they always can. So there's no single way to do this. There's no single level that's right. So when you're catering for multiple audiences with multiple sophistication, multiple levels of numeracy, multiple interest and engagement, um, you have to allow for this. Yeah. Well, one project I know you were involved with was um, to do with developing information provided to people when they're invited for breast screening to help them decide whether or not they want to do that. So I guess this is slightly different from the person who's just received a cancer diagnosis and is making treatment decisions. But maybe there are some similar principles there of do I want to do this or not? What are the principles are exactly the same. And that was I was on the committee that drew up the breast cancer screening leaflets. And um, in particular, this business of being clear that everything has got benefits and harms. And uh, that was the first time, and that you, the information is not there to persuade you to do something. So that was the first time that a breast screening leaflet was published that didn't recommend breast screening. I think that's such an interesting shift, isn't it? That change from, well, the medical people have decided this is what we think you should do, to here's the information to help you the make a choice. The policy is to offer breast screening. That's quite reasonable, that, that's, but, the, but it's not the policy to persuade people to get breast screening. And so it was quite fairly clear about the, the benefits and harm, potential harms of breast screening. In particular, I mean, there was the, um, you know, the, the multiple things with breast screening. There's the fact that you might get a, a false mammogram and we just, you describe how often that happens. But those, that's in a sense, can be countered quite quickly through, um, you know, through further checks. But the biggest, the biggest problem is that is overdiagnosis. Um, um, you know, and, and, and overtreatment because, um, you know, while the breast screening program um, estimated to save 1,300 deaths from breast cancer every year. It's at the cost of 4,000 women being treated unnecessarily for a cancer that would never have affected them. So that's the trade-off over the whole program. But at an individual level, you have to decide, well, you know, is that the kind, am I prepared to take that, to want to, to do that sort of um, trade-off? And some people will, and some people won't. So the crucial thing is that there's no right decision at the end of this. Um, what I, 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 I've, I've seen some very good articles written where about somebody saying, well, I've, I got two friends given exactly the same information and they came to different decisions. They're in exactly the same situation, same information, different decisions. Yeah, absolutely fine. And I, uh, I read some of the um, work that, uh, read about some of the work that had gone into designing this leaflet about breast screening and so on 
has there been follow-up work to see what the impact has been on the number of people choosing to accept the invitation or turn down the invitation or is it too soon to say yeah i the the numbers uh they didn't go up um and i don't think they had a huge influence actually as far as i remember the trend numbers in people actually screening um they uh, you know held up held up well but didn't go up they were it wasn't intended but so that, that, that ties in with what you were saying earlier, that often it doesn't make a decision, a difference to the decision. It's an interesting thing, but it's not a performance indicator because if it went up or went down, isn't, you know, is, is not, not the point. Um, but as you said, the, 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 for me, the really interesting thing was the fact that there was, um, there was a, um, well, it wasn't more than a, a focus group. It was a, you know, a major sort of citizen's jury, essentially, was set up. Uh, which we went to address. I think it's about 25 women, really covering a wide range of, of, of you know, within the age range that were being screened, but um, very different sorts of people. And um, we got to present to them, uh, which is, I think, unusual. They had an oncologist there and a, a statistician there. And, and we weren't, we had warned, you know, about different ways to present the information. And we prepared all sorts of graphics and things like that. And, um, and we went and we were told under, you know, you must not say which one you like or that research suggests is the right one. You mustn't do that. You must just present these as we're thinking about these options and then go bugger off, go away and leave these on the tables for the women. And so it was very, it was quite, you know, we had to just do this. Just, you know, just say, well, there's this, 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 this. Here you are. And we left them on the tables. The women sat around and made their decisions. And they chose exactly the ones I wanted them to choose. Oh, perfect. I was so pleased. It's lovely. Just the ones. It was all to do with what does it mean for 100 people, blah, 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 and things like that. So, again, it was what we would call technically an expected frequency representation. Nothing to do with probabilities or chances or rates and percentages. No, nothing to do with that. Just what does it mean for 100 people? So this is the sort of diagram where maybe you have a hundred stick figures and then they're coloured in according something to something like that, or or a sort of tree diagram showing you start with a hundred people and this many go down different branches and things like that. So and um, that, that you know research has shown that's a very good way to do it. But no matter what the but there's two things: there's the visual representation, but before that there's this choice to do it in terms of an expected um, outcomes for a group of people, um, and uh, you know you think. When you do it, is people say, "Oh, that's obvious." And you realize, "Oh, there's lots of other ways you could do it, which are not so clear at all." Yeah, you can start talking about false positive rates and stuff. Oh no, no, oh no. Yeah, I'm I'm a mathematician. I'm highly numerate. I feel like I'm good at data. I really like these kind of frequency um, based diagrams. I just the, the the ability to see the whole picture in one go in such an immediate way, I think, is really profound. Exactly. You can do the part to whole comparison, um, especially if it's visualized. that. So it's not just it's concentrating on the bad events or the good events. Or something. You should be able to see them both. They should be both be given equal emotional salience in terms of the color and the representation and things like that. So these are, you know, they're all it's all in a sense common sense. But it, it, it obviously hasn't been common sense all the time because how of how. I think very a lot of poor a lot of communication has been. I think I think this might be common sense with the benefit of hindsight. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And a huge amount of work. Yeah. Absolutely. And and related to this um communication of risk, I suppose, um over the years you've commented on lots of media stories of behaviors that do or don't apparently cause cancer. I mean apparently conflicting responses on consecutive days and, and all of these kind of things. So I suppose as an audience, we, we have to have a questioning approach to such stories. But 
what advice do you give to to journalists and researchers when they are telling such stories, which are sometimes built on important research? How, how do they go about communicating that that those ideas in a meaningful and accurate and not too alarmist way? Yeah, I think we just say use both relative and absolute risks so that um, most studies, the study designs uh, that are used in, in a lot of a lot of medicine um, and a lot of reporting is in terms of what you call relative risks. What's the relative comparison between two groups of people? Say given one treatment or another, one treatment, you get one treatment, oh, that increases or decreases the mortality rate by 20% or, or um, you know, eating bacon increases your risk of bowel cancer by 20% or something like that. Lifetime. So it's, it's done but in terms of the change, the relative difference between. But it doesn't tell you actually, well, how big are those risks? Is it 20% of a lot or 20% of almost nothing? Because a 20% increase on almost nothing is still almost nothing. And you may not care a jot about it, particularly if they're telling you to give up your favourite food. So you're, it's, the only way to get an idea of the, of the importance of something is to do the absolute risks. And um, so it's not only us. I mean, everyone recommends this. It's guidelines in journals, mainly ignored, um, that they should be reporting absolute risks. And, and in terms of what does it mean for 100 people? So, you know, we always do the thing, 20% increased risk of bowel cancer of your lifetime if you eat bacon every day. Well, you know, 6% of the population get bowel cancer. So that means that that, you know, 6% goes up to about 7%. So that's that's that relative increase applied to an absolute number percentage. Best to call it six percentage points goes up to seven percentage points. A bit like that. So that means that 100 people have to stuff their gob with bacon every day of their lives in order for one of them to get bowel cancer. And if they eat that every day of their life, they might not live long enough to get bowel cancer. So, yes. so I, I, you know, I tell this, this story with lots of images of, of little people and things like that. You can do it. It's a very powerful, very powerful technique. Obviously, I tell it deliberately the other way to make it look a completely mundane and idiotic risk. Um, although, I, you know, I've been influenced. I don't eat as much processed meat as I used to. I, for me, a bacon sandwich is a big treat. I used, I used to stuff them down. So, you know, I, I do vote with my feet to some extent. But, you know, I try because, you know, it is a risk. I don't want, I'd like my risk. That's why I take statins. You know, it's, 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 it makes a fairly small risk reasonably smaller so so why not do it so um i i uh, so you should use absolute risk and we we've, we've got a uh, plug plug software real risk for journalists and press officers where they can put in these relative risks and it, it expresses in nice language and draws pictures of changes in absolute risks what does it mean for 100 people i was really struck that you said these are kind of standard guidelines and yet people are ignoring them. Do you think that's because they're not aware of the guidelines or because they feel like they get a more dramatic story and a better chance of a headline with the big numbers for the relative risk? Or? There, there's quite a lot of, of storytelling there. And um, and I think, I, I again, talk about this quite a lot. It goes right back to, I think, um, it often goes back to the scientists themselves who quite like coverage and newspaper headlines. But then the press officers can want to milk the story. That's their job. And then the, the journalists want to get their story accepted by the editor. And then worst of all, even if they do quite well, it's the sub-editors who stick their headline on. And then it really, that's, most, that's the most infuriating thing. When people have made an effort all the way through and some crass sub-editor sticks clickbait headline on that suggests that something's going to kill you. I mean, I, I see them all every day I get sent these things. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> 
almost you know long for the days of covid when at least you weren't getting these cats cause cancer stories coming onto your, onto your, into your emails every day i'm just going to interrupt briefly to let you know that if you're enjoying this episode of maths plus cancer then please do head to ox.ac.uk forward slash cancer to find the other episodes in the series in which my amazing guests tell us about some of the many intriguing ways in which maths and stats are helping us to understand and tackle cancer. Um, true story. Um, early in my experience of um, being di- diagnosed with cancer, I knew there was something going on. I was waiting to find out exactly what. Um, so, of course, I went and looked up the stats and you know the sort of percentages describing the different kind of scenarios here. And then I thought, well, actually, this doesn't really mean anything because either I do or I don't, or either it's this or it's that. It's, there's, there's no no randomness in my case there's no probability associated with this it just is or it isn't I just don't know and at that moment I thought I'm sure I went to this talk by David Spiegelhalter in Cambridge where he was tossing a coin and you you will explain this much better than I do. Basically there's two forms of uncertainty put very simply you've got what you call um, something's called aleatory uncertainty I prefer to call it chance um, which is before you toss the coin you don't know what's going to happen in the future the weather tomorrow and all these things they're just unknowns and we can't know them until they happen. We can talk about probabilities of the coin coming up a half, head coming up heads, whatever. And then you've got the other form of uncertainty, which is after you've tossed the coin, but you cover it up. So if I flip a coin now and I cover it up and I say heads or tails, what's the probability it's heads? Well, you know, it's either heads or tails. It is decided. Um, and so what does it mean to talk about the probability? And I think it is meaningful to talk about the probability. It's what's called epistemic uncertainty. It's an it's a idea dating back centuries that you could put probabilities on your lack of knowledge, essentially your ignorance. It's a, it's a, it's a number that expresses you know, our, our, what we don't know. So that, as you said, when you're diagnosed, when, when you take a te- before you take a test for COVID, either you've got COVID or not, and you don't know whether the test is going to be positive. When you're waiting for a diagnostic test to come back, it's epistemic uncertainty. It's there or not, but you don't know what it is. And I'd say it is quite reasonable to think about what's the betting. You know, it's like when someone's pregnant, you don't know if it's a boy or a girl, all these things. It is reasonable. I mean, <laughs> the main way to think about it, if it's something reasonable that someone might put a bet on, it's reasonable to talk about the probability. I doubt anyone was betting on your diagnosis, but mentally you are betting on your diagnosis. And so therefore it's reasonable to put odds on it or probability. Um, they're based on maybe based on judgment and experience and things like that. And but eventually you will find out find out the truth. Yeah, and I guess that ties in with what you were saying earlier about the distinction between um, with the predict tool, tool for example, um, being able to present kind of population level for a hundred people like you type things versus a prediction for an individual person. The, the, the one person, whatever happens, happens, but you can say something meaningful and useful and informative about the population level. Yeah, whatever happens. I mean, every, in the end, everything collapses down. It will happen. But the other way of thinking about it, I think, is that for this individual, their future is aleatory. It is chance. You know, we just don't know. We cannot know what's going to happen. But what we can say in other words, we switch it to a to epistemic, you know, or to a, a model of the past. We can say, well, in the past, or you know, we would expect a hundred people like you. This is what we would expect to happen for hundred years. So we're making a judgment about their chance from observation. I mean, that's how statistics works. Of course, you know, it uses you know history to try to say something about 
the future. Um, and it does this, in this case, by embedding that individual in, a, in an imaginary group of 100 people. It's not actually 100 people. We made that mistake. <gasps> Can you imagine? People said, um, oh, I, I, we got some response saying, well, we don't think much of this tool. It's only based on 100 people. I said, no, no. And that was our fault. Because you know, we draw 100 people. We don't mean this is what actually happened to 100 people in the past. This is 100 fictitious people like you. What I'm imagining expect- now like on um, the BBC BBC show Pointless where they say we asked 100 people. Yes, yes. Kind of, it's not that you asked 100 people. No, we. this is based on tens of thousands of people in their history. So that was our point. Our, I, we never, until you listen to people, you don't realise how they might interpret something. I've learned so much from that. I, you kind of think, it never crossed our minds that anyone would think that. And yet this was, you know, not just one or two. Yeah, It's so interesting, isn't it? Those fine subtleties of the language. And this kind of thing that when you've done it, nobody really realises it. They don't realise the care and work that goes into just the wording of a simple thing. We, we spent a... Oh, I know. Can I tell you a story? Please do. We did one on... Um, a really serious way for, for parents of children with congenital heart disease, uh, talking about the mortality rates in different hospitals for um, uh, for congenital heart disease, and um, we published this. It's because it's public data and it produced, you know, allowing for the uns- the variability and things like that. But w- w- you know, when you start talking about, um, you know. Uh, let's say 95% survival rate, you know, so five out of 100 babies like this, we would expect five to die. You know, how do you talk about, what's the word you put on that uncertainty? You can't say binomial variation or something like that, because we can put an interval around this. this. We can talk about, in a sense, the, the what was the um, underlying risk for a child in that hospital if they had so many deaths. Um, so you you can't say um, you know binary, you can't call it random error for you know, all these technical terms are, are so totally unacceptable and you can't for an individual you can't call it you know chance or fate or providence whether they are one of the ones who survive or die you just know there's a probability we don't know in your case which one it's going to be what what words can be and we struggled for ages and then be, to somehow get a term for unavoidable unpredictability. You know, we cannot say whether you're going to be one of the 95 who survives or one of the five who dies. There's no more we can say. All we can say is one or the other will happen in the roughly in these proportions. There's unavoidable unpredictability. But that's a too clumsy a phrase. So, um, and somebody suggested, who wasn't even a native English speaker, suggested you could use, um, under, we can't predict who will live or die because of unforeseeable factors. And not unforeseen factors, unforeseeable factors. And it's true, actually, because actually a lot of it's to do with when the surgeon actually opens the baby up, you know, what they'll find, exact details, really fine morphology that could affect the operation. So there's, it's unforeseeable what, whether the baby might survive the operation. So that went in there and we checked it with the parents and that was fine. And now that's in there. And it's a fact I, I now always use that if I have to communicate to anybody, say, well, why don't we know who's going to live? After the scene, you know, well, you know, surely you, you got good. I mean, why can't we tell unforeseeable factors? That's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. finding that right phrase. Finding the right phrase, not random error. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not random error. Um, you've talked about um the the, the fact that these tools are not built on a hundred people, but on tens of thousands of people, and and the I guess maybe one reason that the predict tools were created for breast and prostate cancer first was that they are 
sadly common cancers relatively speaking um I've been being treated for a rare type of cancer um so I look at these kind of tools and these data and I have data envy because yeah, there's yeah. not very much research and there's not very much data because yeah. I mean happily there are not very many people um but there are still statistical tools and techniques that are important in the context of small sets of data, sparse sets of data. I think I wonder whether you could say a little bit about that. Well, I, I think what it does, it, it means that there's even more, um, I think, responsibility on the profession and uh, the, the medical establishment to um, it, to collect data on rarer conditions by you know, synthesizing from, you can't just do it in a few centers or something like that. You have to make a really special effort to set up registries, to collect that data, to inform, to provide everyone with a common baseline so that when, you know, this occurs, wherever it occurs, you can refer to a wealth of experience. And you're not just reliant on who happens to write a paper about their group of patients, what they did or anything like that. Um, so I think, and, and because this is done uh, and, um, I'm not sure if it's how much has been done with your condition, but it's an incredibly valuable thing to, to do. As, for example, in congenital heart disease, which is a, you know really um, terribly important, but fortunately not very common. And they've, they've coordinated their data collection, uh, they built a, a risk model for congenital heart disease. Really rare stuff, but they've got a really quite sophisticated risk, risk model now because of essentially every single patient goes in. Every patient in the country goes in. So that's the way to, to do it, I think, that you have to set up these things. because So even if something's rare, um, you do have sufficient, you have as much data as you could have. And again, everyone loves the idea of their experience contributing to future knowledge. I, I I absolutely that really resonates with me. I have carefully ticked the. I want to be. Please yeah. use my data for research. If I'm going to go through this, please do something with it. Yeah, exactly. There's well, one you know in a way good thing can come out of all this is if you can help people in the future. I was reading a little bit recently about an area I think called experimental design, which seems to be about using interesting. I guess, kind of mathematical and statistical tools, maybe where you want to carry out a clinical trial, but you have very few patients potentially to be able to use and how you can kind of control for those different factors you were describing earlier and so on. It's Yeah, it seems like some interesting maths in there. Yeah, well, I mean, experimental design has been around for donkey's years. It started really in, in Rothamsted with agricultural plots and, you know, standards of Latin squares where, you're, where you arrange your crops around the field so that everything's balanced and up to, a, up to an element of randomness. And the simplest experimental design is a simple randomized trial where you essentially flip a coin to decide which treatment someone's going to get in two treatments. And that means that the two groups are comparable. Even in ways you don't know, they're still comparable because you've done it at random. You haven't matched them according to their characteristics. So they're matched even on things you don't know are important. That's the crucial thing about the randomization. But um, but then that's a very blunt instrument. And it works, you know, if you've got huge trials. With smaller studies, people are using increasingly adaptive studies where you might start off where you kind of because if it's something's fairly rare it means that you know quite a big proportion of the people with the condition are being experimented on and you'd like to minimize the number of people getting the inferior treatment so the sort of adaptation that can happen is that you might um for example start with a whole lot of with lots of different treatments lots of different ideas four different ones or something and then you do so many, and then the one that starts looking starts dropping behind. At some point, you drop it. It's like, sorry, it's not going to. You've got a conclusion, and then you concentrate on the others. 
or you can might move change the randomization proportion so more people start getting the one that looks better the most extreme is play the winner in which which you know everyone which is you just give the treatment to the thing that looks best at the moment but that's a very extreme example people usually keep um, some randomization going for as long as possible until you're pretty confident that it's good so these um, study designs which are aimed to as, as I said um, minimize the number of people getting the inferior treatment a lot of work on that you can do all sorts of simulations to work out uh, you know how powerful they are to make sure you can get a firm conclusion at the end and extensively used now um, that's that's become very very uh, much more popular um, as, as a way to do it. the idea has been around for donkey's years but it's taken quite a long time for it to become accepted because it was so much easier just to do 50 50 and keep going and until you've done masses of them and then because there was quite a strong argument i think because people were people were doing studies that were too small and so that they weren't convincing enough to change practice and so um some very influential people led by richard peter i think had the idea that when you do a clinical trial it should be the last clinical trial that's a really interesting phrase you do the last so you make it enormous and you don't stop it early you don't stop it until you're absolutely sure that and that it will change practice and that's it you never have to do this again because otherwise people do lots of small ones you put them together in a sort of what's called a meta-analysis and you combine them but actually the blockbuster study and um, there was a period of doing those i think that well i think they're not quite so popular now because they were they established some really important treatments to do streptokinase and aspirin you know other other things so um, statins statins you, you know it's quite a rare event the state of heart attacks and strokes so you've got to do a lot of people so i'm really grateful i take statins and i know that i don't know i have no idea whether they're going to help me or not and i never will know whether they help me or not but i know on average they 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 reduce heart attacks or strokes and you know that thanks to really robust clinical trial thanks to tens of thousands of people with some really huge studies yeah you were a maths undergraduate here in Oxford. Um, at what point did you decide to go into medical statistics? Ah, that's a good story. Oh, well, I, I did. I, I like the pure maths and I got about halfway through the second year. And frankly, I, I, I as I said, I banged my head on the, my pure maths ceiling. I think everyone's got their ceiling of abstraction beyond which they really struggle. And I started struggling and I thought I loved it, um, but it got really too difficult. And I was very fortunate. My tutor at Oxford was, was Adrian Smith, now president of the Royal Society, and a convinced Bayesian statistician. So not just a statistician, a Bayesian one. So he both got me interested in statistics, but also the philosophy of statistics, what it means. This idea of the uncertainty, the epistemic against the allotry uncertainty. I was learning that 50 years ago when I was 19 and got totally indoctrinated about a particular way to think about probability, that if you give me a chance to, I will go on about about two hours so i'd be wary about asking me so um but and then um what i found is that i it was still very mathematical statistics the sort of stuff i've been teaching as well but um then i i got a job i i i, I was interested in going into some more i did a phd again in mathematical statistics no real applications but then i th then i got a job and i thought i'd quite like to do some applications my first job was in computer-aided diagnosis essentially in the 1970s, it was kind of AI in medicine. It was, it was writing, you know, working out algorithms for um, for diagnosing patients and building prognostic models in head injury. So I was doing that in 19, late 1970s. Um, and uh, and that got me really interested in the whole business. 
And so, and uh, but what I managed to do throughout most of my career was combine the more mathematical, methodological work in with with real applications. And so, for me, the whole career has been an utter joy, utter joy. And I always said, well, I'd do it even though I wasn't being paid. And um, now I found out that's true because I don't get paid anymore, and I'm still working just as hard. <laughs> you touched on this a little bit earlier. Um... You talked about your own experience of, of prostate cancer. Uh, can you say a bit more about how that's changed or not changed the way you go about your work? Oh, my work is just giving me a real enthusiasm for just what we were discussing, the empowerment of patients, the uh, providing them with balanced information that's not trying to persuade them one way or another. And so they're not totally dependent on just the people around them either family or friends or the particular doctors they see. Because one of the things we do, you always think somehow, it's like, you know, people think, oh, science says, like there's some consensus in science. People think, oh, well, the doc- doctors think that. or so, And they don't realise that if they went to a different hospital and maybe just a different clinic in the same hospital, they might get a very different opinion. There's a big variation from place to place and person to person. So the idea there's a monolithic body of knowledge which decides this is the right thing to do. Um, is is I think is is not the case. Um, actually, there is a, a big variety of opinion. Um, I mean, that's why the multidisciplinary team meetings, the MDTs, are so valuable. And that's what, as I said, that's the point at which tools like Predict are, are enormously valuable at providing a level playing field across the country, if not the whole world. So, I, yeah, I, I I think that um, for me, it's just given me an enthusiasm for um, empowering the patients who want to to engage with the decisions being made about them they may not want to and that's completely their right so i'm sorry thank you for telling me that like many will say thank you for telling me this um you know what do you think i should do and i'll do whatever you think is best and that's totally fine Um, but that should not be the default (laughs) otherwise it's pure paternalism so i think that uh, i mean apart from being of course a legal obligation um to uh, get a proper informed consent now um, since the uh, Montgomery judgment in, in, in Scotland from the, in the Supreme Court. Uh, do you know about the Montgomery judgment? I do not. A few years ago, and, it was, um, uh, and it's to do with the fact that consent, you know, when someone consents for uh, a medical intervention, it, it shouldn't be um, on the basis of uh, the issues that are perceived by the medical profession. It should be on the basis that takes into account their own perceived anxieties and concerns so it shifted the responsibility that to the doctors to actually find out what's important for that patient and not just to consider what the medical profession think is important so it's given a big responsibility for that um, so they That's have to they, yeah. yeah they're supposed to do it legally now um, to to elicit this sort of thing so it's almost made you know, shared decision making or some aspect of that um, you know, a legal um, requirement and so having the tools to do that is is even more crucial. You mentioned multidisciplinary teams. I guess you have your your own kind of multidisciplinary team. You mentioned you spend lots of time working with psychologists, for example, professionals with a, a range of expertise. How do you find those collaborations? Oh, I love it. I love it. That's what I've done now for years since I had this more public engagement job. And now when we got the funding to do our Winton Centre, I'm the only statistician, essentially. So um, because we don't do data analysis apart from in the experiments we run. So it's a multidisciplinary team meeting of science communicators, of web designers and psychologists um, uh, who are extraordinary. God, I love them. They're so brilliant. And, and they 
you know, so we're both designing things, doing some beautiful design. We do use outside designers as well for some of the, for our things, but a lot of it is in-house designs, then testing them on individuals, and in the end, doing randomised trials. And the big difference between a medical randomised trial, you know, where you might spend, you know, years to recruit a few, you know, few hundred or a few thousand people, and um, these trials they spend ages to plan because you've got to, we like they're good psychologists they pre-register the design have to get ethics approval and things like that and then you run them overnight so you know on 5,000 individuals on on uh, on uh, on a you know there's a, also the number of different data places you can go to run these things where people get about 50p a time and they, they do a study on which visualization they like or do they understand that you give them something can you answer, answer questions about it so you test people and you test their numeracy and things like that so we've done workshops where we're designing different interventions with the group running them overnight and coming back in the morning with the results of the randomized trial so i mean you know you know you know doctors eat your heart out this is the way to do it <laughs> So I, I'm so impressed with the people who can do this. Yeah. Um, we're going to have to wrap up soon. Final question for you. Uh, what advice would you give to somebody early in their studies now who has an interest in using statistics to, to understand, prevent or treat cancer? Oh, do it. I mean, it's, and we've only talked about a couple of ways. I mean, there's vast amounts more things. If you start getting into genomics, into genetics, um, and there's so many other ways in um, the development of treatments and so on. So many other ways. And we, so we've only hardly scratched the surface on the role of quantitative methods in, in, in um, treating and, um, and uh, exploring cancer. But I've always been personally interested in the, uh, the real sort of Oh, I think it's the kind of sharp end, the, um, the, uh, you know, the stuff that's dealing with patients, with humans. Um, uh, I, I have, that's always been vivid for me, got me engaged. But there's a vast amount of back with the science of cancer, all this, the, the, the um, understanding, the, um, you know, the, the, again, just trying to, which great industry of people doing this work. I never, I've never found that quite as, um, you know, engaging. I like the pointy end. I like I like the human bit. Um, it's absolutely my privilege in this podcast series to be able to talk to people doing a whole bunch of these kind of yes, quantitative yes, techniques and the different real stuff, aspects yeah. of, of mass and stats applied to cancer. David, thank you so much for a, a fascinating conversation today, um, for all your statistical research, and also for being such a, an energetic and articulate champion of, of clear communication and of risk and evidence to benefit cancer patients and so many more. Thank you. No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for letting me ramble on. Thanks for listening to this episode of Maths Plus Cancer. I hope that you found the conversation as interesting as I did. There are more episodes of Maths Plus Cancer, as well as features about Oxford's research into cancer, at ox.ac.uk forward slash cancer. If you're enjoying exploring how maths and stats help us to understand and tackle cancer, I'd love it if you'd tell your friends about the podcast. And please do join in on social media using the hashtag MathsPlusCancer. That's plus the word, not the mathematical symbol.